So this, uh, over in North, we have the privilege of the walls surrounded by junior hires who, an appreciation for what Matt does in there, uh, supporting him in this moment. I wonder if, as a follow-up to MissionCon from last week, if you have been on a short-term mission trip, you've been on one already, could, would you be willing to raise your hand? I'd like to see over in South as well. Okay. A um, little less than half, it looks like, in here. For those of you who did not raise your hand, I'd like to make an encouragement to you. One of our prayers this year is that the Lord would raise up folks who have never gone on a trip to go on a trip. Uh, sometimes we get, and I'm re- reluctant to use this word, but sometimes we get stuck in a rut. <laughs> we do, which I've been told is simply a grave with the ends kicked out. We get stuck in a rut of either there's those who go on mission trips and every year they go again. And there are those who short-term missions comes up and there's this thought, I don't go on those. So we have those who go and those who don't go. Uh, But I want to challenge those of you who have never gone to say, not for the rest of your life, not what we just did with Matt, but to say for one time, for seven days, 10 days, whatever the length of the trip, I'm going to participate and see for myself what it's like to go into another culture and be an instrument of God for more people finding life in Jesus outside of my world. To experience that in trusting the Lord in unique and ways that you wouldn't experience here. Uh, our, our goal is, our prayer is that that would be more of you this year. So if you think I'm speaking directly to you right now as one who has never gone, I am. I am specifically saying, would you give consideration to that? And there are, if you're not sure, you can go on our website or you can grab at the Impact Gazebo. We have a lot of these flyers of our short-term trips available uh, to different parts of the globe. At least take it, read it with a humility before the Lord that says, Lord, is this something you would have for me? I haven't really thought about it before. Is this something you would have for me? I can always be confident that if we'll ask the Lord with a humble heart, he's a good shepherd and a good father, and we need not fear. Do you believe that about him? I I do. Maybe you're still in process and you're not sure that's really true. But I believe with all of my heart that we have a good heavenly father who is a good shepherd, and we need never fear saying yes to him. So I I encourage you to, to at least ask the Lord that. So we started this year with this prayer. Father, by your grace and power at work through us, would at least 110 more people believe in Jesus and be baptized in 2019? I don't know if you've been praying that. We've been praying that faithfully. And the Lord is answering just really a, a joyful time in staff meeting this past Tuesday as we ran around the table and three different individuals shared about in the previous seven days their opportunity to be involved in three new people believing in Jesus Christ to be born again and to be saved. So God is at work. So would you please, this may be a way of reminder or just encouragement again. Uh, we finished with John 4. And the funny thing about uh, 
the way we do stuff in churches, we finish the section of, of scripture, we move on to the next one, we kind of forget everything that had been really impactful to us in the previous section. So I don't want us to, we're not moving on from this. I think there are, there are men and women in your life who God would want to use you to be an instrument of God for them finding life in Jesus. What I'm convinced of is this, more than ever, and I know this sounds obvious, but sometimes we need to remind it of the obvious. Here's the obvious. People aren't going to believe something they have not heard. Correct? And sometimes we just assume they've heard. But you realize not everyone has heard. Just last weekend, um, a few of us went up to do some training at a church outside Atlanta. And because of the drive, they sent a, a service to pick us up from the airport to drive us to this church for us to do the training. And, and our driver's name was Muhammad, and he was from Pakistan. And so, as we talked about in Life Conversations, we simply brought up some spiritual things. And he was like right on it. He wanted to talk about spiritual things. Like so much so, as he's driving us through Atlanta to our destination, he's pulling out his phone, trying to look up stuff on it. And Tony's in the backseat going, could you please put the phone away? Literally, we almost went off the road because he was trying. He was so engaged in the conversation. We talked about Jesus and his claims. We talked about forgiveness. And we talked about how you become and how you don't become a child of God. But in the process, one of the individuals in the back seat, I was in the front seat, said, well, just let me tell you my story. And just took like two or three minutes and told her personal story and then shared very briefly but very clearly the story of saving grace. And I was in the front seat being able to look over at Muhammad. And it was different than our entire rest of the discussion as she just went through the gospel of grace. Because now we weren't debating different viewpoints. You could see him like, like responding to, wow, that's no, not saying it. He was polite. He listened the whole time. And as she was sharing it, and I regret I didn't ask him. I should have asked him at the end. I had that sense. I think as much as he's talked about spiritual things, I don't know that anybody had ever just shared the pure, simple gospel with him. Lives in Atlanta for 30 years now. He met his wife the day after he was married, by the way. In other words, it was arranged marriage. He flew back to Pakistan to get married. And the, the marriage had already taken place, and then he met her. And he said he'd do it for his daughters if they'd let him, but that's a whole different sermon. <laughs> what, what, was, what struck me, and I hope you'll hear this, we tend to share the gospel with, we, with people who we think are ready to believe. And we just don't know. I, I, I'd love for us to, to take a transition and go, let's just assume they've never heard a clear. Lots about Jesus, lots about church, lots about faith, but lots of people have never heard a simple declaration of the gospel. Let's not wait until we think they're going to believe to share it. Let's share it and see if the Lord has been working to bring them to a place of believing. So can I encourage you to be bold, kind, humble, but courageous and bold? Because what's our principle? People won't believe what they have not heard. So we're, we're going to 
keep sharing. To that end, I want you to know, I don't often do this, but I want you to know, because of what we're going to start this morning, next week, I'm going to share how a particular group of people very clearly had never heard, and when they heard, it says they turned to God, and they believed. And I want you to know that I'm going to be talking about that next week, because you might want to invite somebody from work or from a neighborhood that you would go, Ed, I'd love for you to come. We can grab breakfast before, lunch after. Would you ever be interested in just coming to church? And if they say, no, that's no problem, or you can tell them, it's no problem, just wanted to invite you. What I'm trying to take off the table is this. After next week, you coming up to me and saying, I wish I would have known. You would have told me I would have invited somebody. Because I am often asked, hey, is this going to be a good one? Well, my friends, I'm thinking, is it going to be a good one? So, I don't know if it's going to be a good one, but it is going to be the gospel next week. Okay? So, I invite you to invite someone and prayerfully say, Lord, would you take the power of the gospel, which is salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and to the Gentile, that they would turn and believe. Would you pray with me toward that end, toward next Thursday night and Sunday? I can get in a few nods, would you? Seriously, that's a genuine request for prayer. Not just one that you agree to and don't do, but one that you agree to and actually do. You'll pray with me that this week people would come, you'd have courage to invite, people would come and and people would believe. Yeah? All right. So, Father, I want to ask together right now that that would be a work you do in and through folks this week. We can't make it happen. We can say the words, but only you can move in a person's heart to turn a light on. And that's what we're asking would happen, Lord. That by your grace and power, more people would hear and believe. So we commit ourselves to you and and commit ourselves now to the, the word of God that would sharpen us and grow us this morning. That we might say yes to you and whatever you would say to us today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So this morning, having finished John 4, or that portion of it, we're going to begin a series in 1 Thessalonians. But here's the weird part. We're beginning in 1 Thessalonians, but we're turning in our Bible to Acts 17. So uh, we're not going to actually look at 1 Thessalonians at all this morning, even though we're going to begin it, because the letter that he writes to believers in this city called Thessalonica He writes to them because of a visit that he made to them that's recorded in Acts 17. Uh, Because when you came to Jacksonville, there were a jillion churches for you to choose from. Yes? Were there not? Yes. Uh, More than 200 churches to choose from when you come to Jacksonville. Do you know that wasn't always the case? There was a time when people lived in Jacksonville and there was not even a single church. People were here before the church was here. Do you understand that? I mean, that, you go, oh, of course I understand that. But that's hard for us to fathom because we have so many choices. There was, in a city called Thessalonica, 200,000 people who lived there before there was a church. 200,000 people before they ever heard the gospel. 
And so I simply want us, before we look at the letter that he wrote to them after they had believed, I want us to answer the question, how is a church born where there is no church? Because we don't live that world, do we? No, we just import into something that's already happening and, and we go, oh, I like it and stay or I don't like it, we're going to go somewhere else. That's the way it happens now in Jacksonville. But that's not what's happening in Thessalonica. There wasn't a church. And then there was a church. But it wasn't God snapping his fingers. He didn't say, church. <laughs> Some very specific things must happen for a church to be born where there is no church. And that's what I want us to see this morning. All right, you with me? Acts 17. We're going to see it unfold. It says, now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, who is they? It's Paul and Silas. So they, they come to Thessalonica and he specifically mentions there's a synagogue of the Jews. In the coming weeks, we'll see what that means. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is what? Say it with me. He is the Christ. This Jesus that I'm talking about. And so what happened? Verse four. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. All right, so let's pause there in Acts 17. When Paul and Silas shows up, there is no church. But they begin sharing Jesus and who he is and how they can be saved. And some are persuaded. So it wasn't God snapping his fingers. It was this. A church is born in a new territory when a disciple of Jesus called by God goes. A, a church is born in a new territory, like in Thessalonica, uh, like it was a long time ago here in Jacksonville. A church is born when a disciple of Jesus called by God goes. Now, why do I say called by God? Very important here. What Paul was doing in Acts 17 is because of something that had previously happened in his life in Acts 13. So if you're open to Acts 17, turn back to Acts 13, and you'll see that there, Paul has a different name. His name is Saul. So don't be confused here. Same guy. His name then, being called Saul, is at a city in Antioch, which is east of Thessalonica. And he is there as a leader in the church. And it says in verse 2 that while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, which is Paul, for the work to which I have, what? Called them. And then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. What we just did with Matt Blythe as a commendation was a reflection of what we read in Acts 13, where the leaders in the church have a sense that the Holy Spirit, they weren't gilded into it. They weren't assigned to it. 
The Holy Spirit called them. The leaders recognized it. They laid hands on them and sent them and they went out. The ministry that Paul slash Saul here believed that the Holy Spirit had set him to do was to take the gospel where? To where it had not yet gone. It was a calling of God upon his life, not just his life, Barnabas' life, and obviously, Acts 17, Silas's life. It wasn't a calling upon everybody. It was a unique personal calling upon a few. And it's how a church is born. It's born when a church, a disciple of Jesus, called by God, goes, and what did Paul do? We saw it in verse 3. He proclaimed the gospel. Jesus is the Christ where it has not yet gone. See, it's, it's not God snapping its finger. It's God calling of an individual and that individual saying what? Yes, Lord. And yes, Lord, meaning I'll go and I'll proclaim. Now, this very important addition. I'm going to proclaim where it's not yet gone in spite of risk and sacrifice. If you read through from Acts 13, when Paul is called and goes, you know what we'll see constantly wherever he goes? <laughs> Resistance, risk, and sacrifice being made to do it. In Acts 17, he's in the city we've just described briefly, Thessalonica, 200,000. Do you know where he had been prior to that in Acts 16? He had been in a city called Philippi. So if you like, maybe you've read the Bible and you've read Philippians. Philippians is a letter to the church in Philippi, which he had been in Acts 16. When he had been there in Philippi, again, proclaiming the gospel where it had not yet gone, here's what happened. The crowd rose up together against them and the chief magistrates tore the robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. That's in Philippi. They get beaten and thrown in prison for doing what? Proclaiming the gospel. Why? Because God's calling was on their life. So that night, God miraculously releases them from prison. The jailer, scared for his life, ends up hearing and believing and his entire family being saved. And then the city officials realize they had just made a major no-no by beating a Roman citizen. And so they say, Paul, you need to leave. And he does leave and he goes to the next city he goes through two of them that don't have, it would seem, synagogue of the Jews, because this is a pattern. And then he goes to the next city, Thessalonica. And he starts proclaiming the gospel. Jesus is the Christ. And what happens? Pick it up, verse 5, if you're there in Acts 17. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, we'll talk about him in a couple weeks, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. 
When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has done what? Welcomed them. And they are contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king who is Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, what'd they do? <laughs> they went into the synagogue of the Jews. For what purpose? Preach the gospel. So you understand? There was a city named Philippi, didn't have a church. And Paul went there and proclaimed the gospel and people heard and believed and a church was born. Even though he had got beaten up and thrown in prison for doing it, he goes to the next city who has a synagogue of Jews and he does it again. And people believe and the church is born and they, he escapes by night and he goes to Berea and starts it all over again. So you understand, a church is born in a new territory. Don't miss this. When a disciple of Jesus called by God goes, proclaims the gospel where it has not yet gone, in spite of risk and sacrifice. So are there places on our planet in 2019 where the church is not yet born? more places than you might imagine. Statistics say that 24% of the world's population lives in the context where there is not a self-supporting local church there to minister to that people. 24% of the world's population. That's massive from Joshua Project, if you want to check my stats. That's a That's massive. So there are people all over the world still in our day like Thessalonica was in that day and like Jacksonville was at one point until somebody called by God came, declared the gospel in spite of sacrifice and risk. There's still opportunity today. And to get a sense of really... <laughs> Not what Acts 17 looked like, but what Acts 17 would look like in 2019. I'm going to share just a, a brief picture of a kid who, when I started here as the youth pastor, was in eighth grade and barely could read his English, but believed that he was called by God. And his wife believed that she was called by God to go to take the gospel where it had not yet gone. Uh, some of you know them, Tim and Andrea Ullum. And I just want to give you a, a glimpse of what Acts 17, a church being born in a new place, would look like in 2019.
See, I don't know if you ever imagined what it looks like, but that's what Acts 17 looks like in a part of the world today. You recognize no church. And then a kid from Jacksonville said, I believe God is calling me to go and proclaim the gospel where it's never gone in spite of risk and sacrifice. And that moment where it says a believer passed away, I think the first time I watched it, that was what was so powerful to me because it hit me that, that for hundreds upon hundreds and hundreds of years, that had never been true. A believer had passed away. Just that for all those hundreds of years, people had passed into a Christless attorney until someone said yes to the call of God in spite of risk and sacrifice. So uh, this is, I, I am not attempting to convince you. That is 100% the work of the Holy Spirit because uh, um, I moved because I knew that kid. I know that kid and I love that kid. But I want every single one of us, including myself, I seek to always be open before the Lord asking this question. Is God calling me to go and proclaim the gospel in a place where it has not yet gone in spite of risk and sacrifice? Don't assume he's not. I'm not saying he's calling all of us. I'm asking every single one of us, is he calling you? I'm not saying, are you available? Because all of us ought to be available, yes? Because when we trusted in Jesus to be our Savior, it says we no longer belong to ourselves. We have been bought with a price. We belong to him. Our life is his life now. And so, Lord, whatever you want, have you ever asked yourself, regardless of your age or your education or what you think you'd be good at or what you don't think you'd be good at, would you just, Lord... You're calling me. One of the reasons uh, I, I wanted to include Matt's commendation this morning as we looked at this passage is because I want you to know uh, Matt is a guy who believes the Lord has called him and we believe the Lord has called him. And sometimes that's hard to figure out. And so I've asked Matt to be available after all three services. Uh, I see Ginger in here, uh, who, one of our commended missionaries, young gal, who can answer the same question. And here's how I sense to know that God is calling me. Jenkins, right? There's lots of folks, but Matt's going to be, because you saw him up here, you know what he looks like now. He's going to be out by the impact gazebo. And if you have a sense of, I don't know, but how do you know, Matt? Because we agreed together. We have a good father who's a good shepherd, and we have no fear to say yes to him. We ought to only fear saying no to him. You don't believe me? Just ask Jonah on that one. We ought, we ought to simply go, Lord, I'm not afraid. You're a good father. Well, no, no, strike that. I am afraid, but you're a good father. I always remember over in South Auditorium, Tim saying to me one time, People assume I went because I was not afraid, meaning their fears disqualify him, disqualify them. He was like, that's crazy. 
Of course I was afraid. I just believed the Lord was calling me. So, again, let me repeat. I'm not trying to talk you into it. That won't last. But would you say, Holy Spirit, you spoke very clearly in Acts 13. You called, and you have continued to call individuals is your calling on my life for this work. It's one of the things that we as a leadership here at CFC, we regularly pray that the Lord of the harvest would raise up workers. So if you think that may be true, go and see Matt and begin to ask that, that question. What's it mean to, to have God's call on my life? But this is only a part of the equation. There was 200,000 people in Thessalonica without a church, and then there was a church. But it wasn't only because what Paul and Silas did. The other key, and this is just funny, the other key to 1 Thessalonians is in Philippians. (laughs) So we're beginning our study in 1 Thessalonians in Acts 17 and Philippians 4. So turn with me to Philippians 4. Remember, that's where Paul had been in Acts 16 prior to going to Thessalonica in Acts 17. So uh, having completed that trip, he is now writing letters to the churches that God used him to birth. And he writes the Philippians in this way that helps us understand the other portion of the equation of a church being born in Thessalonica. He says to them in verse 15 of Philippians 4, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, that is where Philippi is, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. Now, don't don't miss this in verse 15. Giving and receiving. What's it mean that the Philippians both gave and received? We'll talk about that in a moment. Verse 16. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. But I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. He was obviously the messenger, the one who delivered the gift financially to him. A fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So that's a beautiful picture that we wouldn't know had happened if we didn't have Philippians 4. A church in Thessalonica was born because a disciple of Jesus called by God goes and proclaims the gospel where it had not yet gone in spite of risk and sacrifice and, and what else? And other believers partnered with them. And I want you to understand the distinction. 
It is the privileged opportunity of every believer. And if you're taking notes, I want you to underline that in your message memo. Every believer. Because I I was clear, I hope I was clear, that the calling of God to go is a something very personal and specific. I am not suggesting that every person in here should go to proclaim the gospel where it's not yet gone. But I am declaring to us equally passionately and equally committed that it is the privilege of every believer to participate in partnering with those who go. This is what I love about Thessalonica. Paul went, but he went writing back to the Philippians and saying to them, man, you helped me. You partnered with me, and you partnered with me by giving. Very specifically, he says, you sent a gift. And he says, you sent a gift. You partnered with me by giving more than once. It was not just a one-time thank you for showing up in Philippi, Paul. It was, uh, we're going to keep doing whatever we can do to help you keep doing what God has called you to do. See, they gave in order that the goer can be fully engaged in church planning, not to be distracted, not to be sidelined by having to do other things. And when that happens, when every believer takes the privileged opportunity to partner with those whom God has personally and specifically called and they partner with them by giving more than once, then you see in 2019 happening what happened in Acts 17. Churches being born where there's not a church. Not another church in the midst of another 199 churches, but a church where there was no church. Radically different. And Paul says, four truths about this privilege that that I don't want you to miss. He says, first, the privilege of those who give is that they get to share in the weight of the ministry. You share in the weight. He said in verse 15 uh, or 14, nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. You, you, You share with me in the weight. You know what the picture is? Well, let me make it very real. Almost every guy in here has been taught sufficiently to know that if you see a woman carrying heavy weights, that what does any gentleman do? You run up beside him and you say, hey, can I help you with that? Can I carry, let me carry that for you, right? Yes? If you didn't do that sort of thing, your mama would whack you. <laughs> Be a gentleman. And I think Paul is saying this. Every disciple of Jesus gets to run up beside a goer and say, hey, can I help you with this? Because that's a heavy weight. I've had the, the privilege to watch that video a couple times now, but as you watch it again and again, you begin to see the weight that it is to carry. 
in taking the gospel into a new place in a completely different culture, the weight of being a complete outsider, the weight of learning a language and being the outsider and not knowing what people are saying, the weight of recognizing I'm here attempting to learn the language to share the gospel with you, but in the meantime, people are dying and I am so frustrated that this takes so long and is so hard. I don't know if you've ever thought about the reality that in the years between Tim and Angie went until the first opportunity to declare the gospel, there were years between that because of language and culture about it. There were years there. And in the meantime, they're carrying the weight of we have a message, but we can't declare it in their heart language yet. That's a weight to carry. It's a weight just to live in that culture. It's a weight to be on the outsider. See, when you're taking the gospel to a new place, it's always going to be hard because you're not walking into a vacuum. You're walking into a, a, a situation of people who have believed in something and now you're calling their baby ugly and wrong. Not rude. But that's what you're doing. The the claim of the gospel is every other thought system, every other idea about how to begin a relationship with God and become right with God is now. There's no other, it's just no other say it. It's wrong. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And so that's going to be met with, oh, wow, we love to have people show up and tell us we're wrong. You know, you get a sense of why he got beat up wherever he went? Because he walked into towns and told people for thousands of years, your baby's been ugly. Now, he wasn't rude about it, but that's the reality of the gospel. It's hard. And you as a person, a believer in Jesus, you have an opportunity to be a Philippian. You have an opportunity, not just for the elders. We have lots of folks at the chapel who called by God are doing what God has called them to do. And you have the privileged opportunity to run up alongside them, a disciple of Jesus, and say, can I help you with the weight? Can I help carry it with you? One of the realities that they've shared with me is, you said we send a weekly email, a weekly prayer request, and we... We try to keep a communication, but hardly anybody ever replies. They, they, they'll tell us, oh, man, we love those, but they don't reply to us, and we're, we're kind of like on this <laughs> one-ended conversation. That's a hardship that you can carry. And that, again, I'm just using them as an example of all sorts of people who are doing what they're doing around the globe. Second, he says, you get to share in the fruit of the ministry. You get to share in the fruit of the ministry. See, this is the joyful part of sharing in the weight. When my wife comes home from the grocery store, my boys weren't always ex- excited to go help carry them in, but they sure did enjoy eating what was in the bags once they got in the house, Right? I'm sure all of us were moved as we watched those people being baptized, except the lady who didn't want to go under. Did you notice? <laughs> I've had one of those, and the hair is sticking out. It's like, <laughs> there's, there's joy for all of us in watching that unfolding, but there's even greater joy, quite frankly, for those of you who have said, hey, can I help carry the weight? 
Because you have a sense of, I've shared in the weight, and I have an even greater sense I'm sharing in the fruit of the ministry. And, it, and when you kind of stay away from that, stay out of it, and you never jump in and share the weight, then you don't get to share the fruit either. It's, it's just a loss. It's the privilege to share the weight is because you get to share in the fruit of the ministry. He says, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. He's going, Philippians, this is so awesome. It's great that my needs are supplied, but God was going to supply in some way. What I love is the fact that you gave and by giving, you have deposited into an account that you'll never lose. This is Jesus said, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where it's going to rust, rot, or get ripped off. Lay it up in heaven where they'll never happen. There's an account that you and I get to put our resources in that really does matter, that we get to share in the weight by using what Jesus called his unrighteous mammon, just resources that we get to share in the weight and we get to share in the fruit. He's going, there's an account. And as much as we like to watch our financial earthly accounts, I wonder if we ever take a glance at the eternal account one that's never going to be impacted by wacky decisions. An offering, he says, is a pleasing gift. When you do it, it's a pleasing gift. Uh, The sweet aroma is the description. I love it, the sweet aroma. Uh, It's hearkening back to the Old Testament sacrificial system, which is the, the symbol, was the, the shadow of what was to come in Jesus in that an offering would be brought in and be a burnt offering. And God says that that burnt offering is like a fragrant aroma, meaning it smells like love of God. You understand what I'm saying? That, that, that reflects, I love you, God, by giving that which I could use on myself, but I'm giving it as an offering for the sake of your name and your glory. And God goes, man, I love that it smells like love of God. And that when you run alongside someone who has said, I've, I'm called to go, you run alongside, hey, hey, can I help? God says, I love that. It smells like a love of God aroma. Pleasing to him. And with this, you get this incredible promise that they will have their every need met fully by God. That's an incredible, that's a, I know you're just filling in blanks, but don't just fill in blank and miss. That's an incredible promise given to Paul or to the Philippians. This is spoken, verse 19, is to whom? To the Philippians, that according to what you've done, God, well, here it is. Verse 19, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Is that, is that truly a promise of God? Okay, really? All, I, he will supply all your needs. Yeah, now folks, don't strip it from its context. He is not saying, hey, live however you want and spend all your money on yourself and then God will meet all your needs. No. What's he saying? He's saying what's true for so many of us is simply this. We have that sense of God prompting us to give, and then we get afraid. Well, what if, what if I don't have enough? Ever thought that? I'm sure you have. And so maybe you still gave, but you gave a half of what you had really thought, and then you went, oh, let me divide that too, and you know, that's 
half is better than nothing. But it's rooted in a fear that if I give away, what if I don't have? And, and Paul says, you don't need to bring that junk in here because that's just not true. My promise is this. You, by faith, step through that fear and you give. My God will supply all your needs. Not the lifestyle you said you were going to demand. So, again, don't make it a promise it's not. But my God will supply all your needs. You cannot outgive God to the point that now you do not have needs. That's a promise. That's not prosperity gospel. That's the promise of God. That because people have abused it, we've thrown it out. And I want to reclaim it for what it really is. It's the promise that if you will say, hey, (laughs) I see God's calling on your life. Can I help you? And I, well, maybe I'm the only one, but I've often had those moments of fear. But what if? And God has repeatedly revealed in very specific ways for me, Doug, you don't need to worry about that. I will provide your needs. And he will yours. Your riches, according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So, ask you first, is God calling you? I don't anticipate that would be the majority in here, really. If God is calling you to go, please say yes. But I would anticipate the vast majority in here, we go, God, yeah, I, I want the privileged opportunity to say, I want to help Carrie. So can I be perfectly clear with you? If you are not currently investing in any way into someone who is called by God to go and take the gospel to begin to take the church to begin where it's not is would you start please is that clear enough and if you can do more would you say lord I can do more. Now, every time we hear the word of God, we get an opportunity to say yes or be neutral, which is a polite no. We're good at the polite nose. So I, there's an answer here for us. Yes, Lord. And we don't need to be afraid of his yes. The beauty that we'll look at next week, just quick preview. The beauty is a disciple of Jesus called by God goes and proclaims the gospel where it had not yet gone in spite of risk and sacrifice, and he did so because believers in Philippi had said, we can share the weight with you. And what happened? And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. See, the church is actually not born because somebody went and somebody sent. The church was born because somebody went and somebody sent and people (laughs) believed. And that's what we'll talk about 
turning to God next week. But this morning, will you be a part of a church being born this year in this world? That that we would say, yeah, I want to be a part. So Paul's with me and bow. And Lord, we pause together in this moment. Maybe you've never said this to the Lord. You've been afraid. You don't need to be afraid. Just to say, Lord, I'm available to do whatever you want. If your calling on my life is to go, to lead my family, to lead my spouse, I will go according to your leading. Would you say to him, Lord, I'm available. And I ask you, Lord, Lord of the harvest, would you raise up some new men, some new couples, new families in this body whom you would send. And with them, would you raise up whole congregation of believers who seize the opportunity to share the weight with them. That you would raise up in our body Lord folks who would say I'll help now those who are already gone. Would you tell him yes right now Lord that you will help that you'll partner that you'll give. You might not know to whom yet but that you'll give. Would you tell him yes right now? Don't wait. Yes, Lord, I'll help. Thank you, God, that when people go and declare that you are mighty to save. In Christ's name, let's stand if you would with me. Salve!
hope of the nations I believe it with all of my heart it's worthy of our lives and our resources for the sake of his name let's say yes to him if we can pray with you in any way it is always our privilege to do so after the service or out by that impact gazebo we can answer those questions about calling and how can I begin to help share the weight God bless